How would you like the best life ever? It sounds a little bit like an infomercial, right? Hey, for you, just three easy payments of $39.95. We can get you the best life ever. Maybe a little bit like a telemarketer. Bob, you don't mind if I call you Bob, do you, Bob? Bob, we've got the best life ever for you. Just you give us a call back. We'd love to talk to you about it. Maybe it's that old-fashioned snake oil salesperson. In this little bottle is an elixir. It'll give you the best life ever. How would you like the best life ever? Our passage today is going to talk about it. In fact, we have been talking about it over the past number of weeks. We've been talking about wanting God. That if we want God, in fact, to truly want God is to want what God wants. And God wants to give us the best life ever. To truly want God is to want what God wants. So we've looked at a number of passages. Today, we're looking at a passage uh, in the book of Romans, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Each of the passages we've been looking at in this sermon series are those, those particular little verses in the Bible that just provide incredible clarity uh, on life and on God's desires for us. And this passage is no exception. One way to think about this passage is simply to describe it as living in response to God's mercies. The best life ever involves living in response to God's mercies. Let's go ahead and read our text together this morning. Um, uh, it's from Romans verses uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them. If you're at home and you have your Bible with you, make sure that it's opened also and you can follow along. We'll put it on the screen. Romans 12, 1 and 2, hear the word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, and perfect. May God bless the reading of his word, and may God show favor on us as we apply his word to our lives today. All right, let me ask you, what do these three things have in common? Carbohydrates, the Trinity, and a courtroom. Tripartites. You could use the ad adjective tripartite to describe each one of those things. It, it, tripartite simply means having threeness to it. And so a carbohydrate, of course, has carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. The Trinity, which is a unity, but it has a threeness to it, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A courtroom, you've got the prosecution, the defense, and a judge. Tripartite. Well, our passage today happens to be a tripartite passage. In our passage, we're going to find uh, this phrase, mercies of God. We'll talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about the phrase, living sacrifices. Uh, and then we'll talk about a, a contrast um, that the uh, verses provide for us. The contrast from don't conform to be transformed. Don't conform, but be transformed. 
All right, so let's take a look at those each in turn. Let's first look at uh, mercies of God. I am an Android user. That's, I'm, I know that there's a lot of Apple people in the community, a lot of iPhone folks. I uh, even had a MacBook for a while. I went back to the PC. I'm Microsoft and Google. That's who I am. I know that on the Google Maps, that when you hit that little button asking for directions, it gives you uh, an opportunity to fill in a couple places. And they say the beginning spot, they, they automatically put in there your location. And unless we're going to uh, come up with a trip plan for somebody else or some kind of hypothetical trip or some future trip, we're going to choose our location. That's where we start from. But at this passage, Paul doesn't begin with where the people are. He's not going to make an appeal based on where the people are. He's going to make an appeal based on the mercies of God. Not your location, but what God has provided for you. And so let's play around with the words there. Let's take a look at some of the words that pop up in that first verse of chapter 12. Let's look at the word therefore. This might be the biggest therefore in all of Scripture. Uh, if you haven't had the opportunity to, to read the book of, uh, of Romans or it's been a while, I encourage you to go back and sit down and, and read through this incredible letter that Paul wrote. And, and you look at those first 11 chapters and it's just full of these uh, insightful statements about who God is and what God has done and who we are and our need for God and just all kinds of truth just coming through like a big fire hose with this good news that comes from God through Jesus Christ to us. Paul, empowered by the Holy Spirit, bringing that news to us. In fact, we might be able to say kind of generally that, that those first 11 chapters are orthodoxy. It's, it's right belief, right doctrine, right understanding. And then there comes this turn at chapter 12, where there's application now. Not that there, there were a couple places in those first 11 chapters where, where Paul gave some instruction, but here it's the shift, and now it's going to go in light of what we just heard, in light of what Paul just proclaimed, in light of what is true. Here's how to live. Therefore, now we could be tempted to say, you know, um, that's a great description for how life should be. I'm going to spend a lot longer just learning what's true. And then I'll put it off for a while whether I actually want to apply it or not. I'll wait for the therefore. It's going to come in some future chapter. The literary device that Paul uses isn't meant to be descriptive of our lives. In fact, we could go back to each of the places where Paul proclaimed the good news of the gospel, and we could add a therefore right after it. There are so many places we could land. Let's just look at a couple of them. We could go back to uh, Romans Chapter 1, verse 16, this great declaration that Paul provides there. He says in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. At that spot, we could insert the same therefore and jump right to chapter 12. The power of, of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. Therefore, live this way. We could take a look at Romans chapter 5, 8, where we read those familiar words, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
We could throw in a therefore right after that verse and just jump to chapter 12, verse 1. God's good news props something in us. There's a response to God's good news toward us. That's the therefore. It kind of functions like a springboard. Like all that God provides, it's like a, a, a diving. Some of you are probably are really good divers. I get on the springboard and I try to jump on it and I never come down and time it just right. You know, I, I'm one of those guys that jumps off on the springboard and kind of thuds back down on it or something and, and it does not look smooth or graceful at all. But if you come down at the right time and you hit that springboard just right, it, it creates potential energy right? It goes down and it wants to return. It wants to release that energy. Think of a trampoline. If you're on a trampoline and and you come down on it and the force of gravity and your weight and it pushes that trampoline down and the trampoline wants to return, it wants to get rid of that energy and, and discharge that energy. And so Paul goes, listen, I've just written to you all these incredible statements. Orthodoxy is to give way to orthopraxy, right practice, we springboard off of what he's provided. Then we can look at the words brothers and sisters. I think Paul would be very comfortable that if we would translate uh, brothers into brothers and sisters, it was the understanding of the time that this would mean all of the followers. Brothers and sisters. In other words, this means you. Okay, I'm going to use an illustration that if you're part of Gen Z, my warning is that you're not going to, you're going to really have to work hard with me on this, Okay. All right, so um, we're going to go back to when I was in high school. I was uh, my senior year in high school. There was this comedian that was blowing up at the time, just huge. His name, and you may have heard of him if you're in Gen Z, but maybe not, because he's an old guy now. His name is Steve Martin. So, you guys, so Steve Martin. So you probably, right, Steve Martin. <laughs> what old guy is that? Steve Martin was huge. He was like this world-known uh, comedian. Back then, we didn't have, uh, um, you know, the kind of radio where you can dial into anything you want to listen to, the Sirius XM. You, you couldn't do that back then. So you had these vinyl albums, and you'd even have comedians that would put out an album. Well, Steve Martin was blowing up. Uh, he was making a transition to become the lead actor in movies. And so in my senior year, uh, Steve Martin happened to have a sister that lived nearby where I was living at the time in, in San Jose, California. And, and so there was this pre-showing of his first movie that he was starring in, The Jerk. The Jerk. All right? So somehow I got a connection and, and I went, I was invited to the pre-screening of The Jerk. And Steve Martin was there and he spoke and we had, it's not like he, would, he wouldn't go like right now going, I met Bob Jordan at the screen. He wouldn't, didn't know. <laughs> Didn't know I was there at all. All right, so in this movie, all right, uh, he's playing the role of Navin R. Johnson. And he has this job as a gas station attendant. Okay, so if you're in Gen Z, there was this time where gas stations had attendants that would come out and fill your car with gas and clean your window and change the oil. Uh, all right, so that's the role he was playing. Now, a truck shows up and a truck's delivering phone books. All right, so, so a phone book, a, a phone book, a phone book, the phone companies, there used to be these phone companies, and, and they would put out a phone book with everybody's name in it from a, a community, a bunch of zip codes together, like all of Peoria would be in one phone book, and it'd have 
the person's name and a phone number right next to it. So Navin R. Johnson, the role Steve Martin, the old guy Steve Martin was playing back then, he goes out to the truck, gets the phone book, he opens it up, page 73, Johnson, Navin R. He goes, in print, my life is going to change. Okay, that's ridiculous. That's a long illustration, all to point out this. Your name in print. This is you. This isn't just some old ancient text. Paul says, therefore, brothers and sisters, and if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are a brother or a sister, a sister or a brother to the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to you through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the work of God, the stewardship of the church. This text comes to you, and it has you right in it. Therefore, sister, therefore, brother, he says, I appeal to you. I appeal to you. The word is not quite a command. It's not a suggestion. It's an exhortation. He says, I appeal to you. Therefore, sister, therefore, brother, I appeal to you. And he makes his appeal on the mercies of God. That's the starting point. Therefore, sister, therefore, brother, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, through the mercies of God, through God's forgiveness, through the gift of God's work in Jesus Christ on the cross, your justification. He makes an appeal through the gift of salvation, the gift of fellowship with God, the gift of freedom from the tyranny of the power of sin over our lives. He makes his appeal based on eternal life and all the love that that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Upon this, Paul makes his appeal to you and to me. If that's the first part of the tripartite passage, let's look at the second part, living sacrifice, living sacrifice. Now, if you happen to be colorblind, my apologies about this scream. Um, all the words probably look the same to you. What I've done is I've uh, actually put different words in different colors. And so the words that are highlighted are, are words like uh, the words bodies, holy, acceptable, spiritual worship. You know, if we were hearing this passage back in that first century, we would have firsthand knowledge. We, we would be aware of, of temples, not only the temple in Jerusalem, and maybe some of the folks in, in Rome didn't have a firsthand experience of that, but they would have known other temples. They would have known sacrifices that would have been made. It would have been part of the culture. They would have known the need for sacrifices to be holy and to be set apart, um, that there w- was something about what you brought in, as part of your worship experience. Back then, it was animal sa- sacrifices, and In the Jewish faith, it was super important that that would be an unblemished animal. You wouldn't bring something uh, blemished. You wouldn't bring less than the best to God. Worship demanded that there would be this alignment between your heart and the act of showing honor. You wouldn't just kind of phone it in or, or be phony about it. But you would bring your best as part of your sacrifice. Only now, in Paul's telling of it, something has changed. It's not the taking the life of an animal. 
a life had already been taken. There was the ultimate uh, altar, was the cross. And upon that ultimate altar was the ultimate sacrifice of the Son of God dying on behalf of those who were trapped in sin, that they might have new life. So in Paul's description as those who have received God's grace, that we become a living sacrifice because the ultimate sacrifice has already been paid. We now live out our lives as a living sacrifice in response to the work that God has done for us. And instead of there being an altar or a central place that we need to go to, all of a sudden the altar becomes everywhere and at any time. And if we, again, circle around that word spiritual, we, there's, by the way, there's been a lot that's been written on this one particular word spiritual, that, that it's, it's reasonable or, or that there's this inner alignment. It's appropriate given the relationship, given who God is and, and who we are, that there's this authentic worship of God. In fact, Dr. Moo, in his commentary on Romans, he uh, refers to it as true worship. When we live our lives out as a living sacrifice, set apart for God, pleasing to God, this is our true worship. Do you know in the Old Testament, there was a really, um, uh, this teaching that would go on just even by the way that the people of God were called to lay out their camp. That as you move toward uh, the tabernacle, the, the meeting place with God, as you would move toward it, things would become more sacred, more fine, more set apart. And so even if you look at the, gar- the garments and the, uh, uh, the, the rest of the uh, things that were involved in making the tabernacle, the closer you got to the Holy of Holies, the closer you got to the central meeting place with God, the more sacred there was this set-apartness was. You'd go from the profane to the sacred. But what Paul's laying out is because of the work that God has done through Jesus on the Christ, everywhere becomes sacred. The opportunity for everywhere and at any time to become sacred. You might say, well, doesn't that just lower the meaning of sacredness? Doesn't that just bring that, if everything's sacred, then can anything be sacred? No, what makes it sacred is Jesus Christ alive in us. The gift of the Holy Spirit, that that we have received the Spirit, and wherever we go and wherever we shine light, that that opportunity is one in which God is glorified. It doesn't bring sacredness down. It lifts up and elevates everywhere and any time. Through Christ, everywhere becomes sacred. The potential the potential to live that out, to, to leap off of the mercies of God and to present his goodness to others. As people encounter you, as people encounter me, the opportunity for us to be living sacrifices, showing the love of God. You know, one of the things that living sacrifices reminds us of too is that it's not metered. That faith is not meant to be metered, it's like uh, portioned out in small amounts. That, that it's not a partial living for God. That we don't just go, you know, I'm good with this, God. <laughs> thanks for your mercy. Thanks for your love. Thanks for Jesus. But this is about as far as I want to go. Living sacrifice is an all-out way of living. Uh, in other, so in order for that to happen, 
I need you, and I, I believe you'll need me, and we need each other. I, we're called to do that together. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is Hebrews chapter 10, verses uh, 24 and 25, where um, uh, the writer of he- Hebrews states, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting, not neglecting to meet together as some of the habit of doing, but instead um, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching, that we would meet together. And I love that, that word. I love how different translations translate the idea of stirring up. So ESV has stirring up. Let's stir up one another to love and good works. You kind of get this big spoon out. We just stir up one another. So the NRSV has provoke. You know, sounds, <laughs> let's provoke one another to love and good works. The NIV it kind of goes all country and western on us. It says, let's spur one another, you know, kind of, <laughs> yeehaw! And then the hoity-toity, it's kind of a different kind of approach. Uh, the New American Standard Bible, I don't, I don't know if anyone even uh, makes use of that as much anymore, but they have the, let's stimulate one another to love and good works. Let's, let's move each other. Let's encourage one another to love and good works, to being that living sacrifice in this world. Regardless of what you might think of his politics, there was, uh, uh, I remember this line, this encouraging line that the Reverend Jesse Jackson provided a long time ago. He's an activist and a politician and a Baptist pastor, and he appeared on Sesame Street just a long, long time ago, but he was quoting from a poem And he used these words, I am somebody. I am somebody. And it was a great reminder to the the kids that he was working with. He used it in other speeches, and he would help people to know that they were somebody. And that people needed that reminder, I am somebody. I'm not a nobody. I'm not a nothing. I'm not meant to be discarded. I am somebody. But as Christians... As living sacrifices, here's where we come alongside each other. I am loved by God. And I need you to remind me of that. That we can be able to say together, I am forgiven of my sins. That we can encourage one another, I am going to heaven. Therefore, I am a living sacrifice. With two down, let's go to the third. It's that contrast between don't conform to the ways of this world, but be transformed. Don't conform, but be transformed. I uh, like how it's written, actually, in the NIV, uh, where the ESV makes conforming a passive verb, meaning someone else is conducting the action, not you. So do not be conformed as though something else were conformist. The NIV helps to point out there's a little distinction between the two words. And so in the NIV, we would read it this way, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And there's a sense of ownership there, of of involvement of us. And then it goes on to say, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good and pleasing will. How would you like, how would you like this? The best life ever. How would you like to know how to respond in any situation? In any situation. Someone comes to you asking 
for your counsel on gender identity. Racism in your community is causing the playing field not to be the same for everybody. Someone on your team is asking you to participate in something you know is not constructive, but destructive. How would you like to know in each of those instances how to move forward? Paul makes two statements in here. One side of the contrast is don't conform to the ways of this world. This is really hard. This is really hard. Whole industries exist to try to get us to conform. Even without industries that are, are, paying, are paying out billions of dollars to, to market your attention, to go in certain directions, to buy certain things, to dress certain ways, to have your hair cut and combed in a certain way, that even just the sense of peer pressure around us can cause us to want to conform, to line up with everybody else, to be one more sheep around that herd. And so Paul then provides the contrast. Here's how to fight conforming forces. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know that... Um, you know the concept worldview? You've heard of the concept worldview. It's, it's how the lens you use to view the whole of the world. So you've got a world, everybody's got a worldview. Some people think about their worldview. A lot of us just kind of go, worldview? <laughs> Isn't that just the way everything works? Because we just accept it. We don't, we don't wrestle with it. Worldview is how you answer these four basic questions. At least this is one way to define a worldview. Uh, who's in charge? Who am I? What's the problem? And what's the solution? So what the Bible's getting at is, is that it wants to help us understand who's in charge, who we are, what the problem is, and what the solution is. And the world, at the same time, wants us to answer those questions in alignment with the way the world wants to think about it. Whatever our culture says, whatever Rome says, or the United States says, or Amazon.com says, or what the other kids in high school say, or whatever it might be. And so in Scripture we find, and even through the writings of Paul, we find out that the one who is in charge is God and not me. You know, in this world, we like to encourage people, you know, you're the boss of you. You do you. You have your truth. You, make, you do what makes you happy. And we put ourselves as being the one in charge and, and that we can be the one in charge of our own lives. And the Bible will come against that and say, no, it's God. Who am I? I? In the Bible, it tells us that we are lost without God. But that with God, that we are the receiver of all of his mercies. And that's who we are, that we are the beloved children of God. In the Bible, it says, what's the problem? The problem isn't you're, whether you're happy enough or whether you're rich enough or whether you're, you're healthy enough or you're, you're safe enough. It, it doesn't talk. It, it says that the problem is sin and its consequences. And that the solution is Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we gather together. We encourage one another so that we will not be conformed, that we don't accept conforming to, to the ways of this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewal of our mind. 
You know, we've said it around here a, a whole lot that the real heavy work of transformation is done by God. God is the one who does the heavy work of, of transforming us. We, we have a passage like uh, uh, Romans 8, 29. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. To be conformed. Do you hear the passive? That God would be the one conforming us into the image of his son. If we had time, we could look at other passages that just reiterate the same thing. Yes, God does the heavy work, and yet we also know that we engage in that process too. In fact, even in our in, up, and out, we underscore this. In the up, the three movements that we have as a church, in the up, it says that we would be transformed, God doing the heavy lifting, God doing the transforming work as we learn and live God's word. As we would open our minds and receive the true understanding of how things work. The best life ever. Don't conform to the ways of this world, but be transformed. And so we have this tripartite passage. Mercies of God, living sacrifices. Don't conform. Be transformed. All right, so what do we get when we include all of these appeals together. What does that equal? I thought I'd throw in an equation for those of us that like equations, all right? Those of you that get a little nervous with a plus sign, even a plus sign, be at peace, all right? What do we get? Well, let's play with it first. Let's say we take out the mercies of God. If we take out one of these three, let's take out, let's take out the mercies of God. What do we get? Turns out we end up with soul-crushing legalism. If we're not standing upon the mercies of God and we're just trying to gut this thing out, if we're just trying to, to you know, okay, I'll be a living sacrifice if I have to, great, I'll, I'll do these works, it might feel like at times, it might feel like we have this self-righteous legalism, but in the end, it'll never be enough. It'll never be enough, and it's soul-crushing. All right, so if we, if we put that one back in, but we take out living sacrifices. So we go, yeah, I, I love the mercies of God. And I, I'm going to go do uh, transformative living stuff. I'm not going to be conformed to the way, but we take out the living sacrifice. I think what we get here is self-managed religion. We become the ones in charge of the valve about how much of our life is given to God. You know, I, I can fit in... Um, uh, being light to the world this weekend, but next weekend, I'm all booked up. I don't have the energy. I don't have the inclination. Catch me maybe next month. Do another mission project then because I might have more space in my life then. All right, so let's say we throw living sacrifice back in, all out living for God. What if we remove don't conform but be transformed? I think what we end up is with a dead, lifeless faith. James said it, faith without works. We can go around saying, listen, I believe in the mercies of God and I'm a living sacrifice, but if there's no change in our behavior, no change in our choices, as James says, then our faith is dead and without life. But when we put all these together, we put the three parts back in, the mercies of God, living sacrifice, and that contrast of don't be conformed to the ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. What we get is a joy-filled, God-centered 
light shining, a life pleasing to God, the best life ever. To want God is to want his mercies. To want God is to live as a living sacrifice. To want God is to no longer be conformed to the ways of this world. To want God is to want to be transformed by God as we learn and live his word. The best life ever. Our scripture reads, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not conform to the ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then you will be able to discern the will of God. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of being able to hear from Paul in his teaching this passage. God, thank you that you have made the way possible for us to have the best life ever. You know, for some of us, it's really hard to let go and to let that life be ours. We like being in charge. We, we like when we get the approval of the world around us. God, may you keep working in us. Would you continue to renew our minds, that you would continue to transform us, that we would be able to adopt and see clearly and, and live out the best life ever, the life that you have for us in and through Jesus Christ, full of your spirit as we follow your lead. We thank you, God, that you've given us these elements this morning that we might be able to celebrate the meal that brings our attention back to all that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Would you set these elements aside for your glory, for your use in our lives this morning? We give you thanks. In Christ's name, amen.